Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am thrilled to say that this episode is made possible by the wonderful people at Thump Coffee. Thump sits at the crossroads where great people and ideas meet. Morning to night, from coffee to beer, this coffee house is a unique gathering place for like minds nestled together at the edge of unimaginable possibility. I felt this was a fitting sponsor for Frank's episode, as he himself is a supporter and even an ambassador of Thump. Check out their website at www.thumpcoffee.com. That's T-H-U-M-P coffee.com. It is rare for 92-year-old Frank Moore's name to be mentioned without the words fly-fishing legend somewhere thereafter. World War II veteran, longtime North Umpqua guide and lodge owner, conservationist, devoted husband, father, friend, there are few people who meet Frank and don't ponder their own impact on the world. This particular episode may be tough to follow. Frank has recently completed a film titled Mending the Line, where he and Jeannie, his wife of over 70 years, traveled back to Normandy to fish the rivers he saw as a soldier. Frank walks me through the history leading up to this visit, before I eventually sway him into conversation about another film, a film made in 1968 titled Pass Creek. To avoid confusion between the two, I'll take a brief break between conversations and will further explain the importance of Pass Creek and just how critical it was to our fisheries and environment today. I was born up near southwest of Portland, about 40 miles, in a little town of Carleton, Oregon. That's where I was born. And uh, I was, fortunately, I was born to a father that loved the outdoors and was, uh, back in the 20s, was a good fly fisherman and built his own lines even. He would take uh, linseed oil and varnish and, and build up the lines just like today that, you know, they make them. And he'd build, he'd build his own up with that, let them dry, and then put another coat on and and uh, he built his own fly rods and tied his own flies back then. And every summer, every weekend we'd go somewhere. 
fly fishing. Every summer, we'd take off a month or two and go someplace that Dad had heard of that supposedly had good trout fishing, and nobody else had probably ever been there. And uh, there was amazing, there was quite a few places in there were still very, very virgin places, you know. And and it was a wonderful life for a young kid. And uh, I had that, well, was able to do that for about nine years, and then my father died. And uh, so it destroyed, really destroyed me for several years. It really wiped me out. And I finally, my mother finally married another gentleman over by Canby, and we moved over to Canby, Oregon. And that's where I met Jeannie when, at uh, Canby High School. And uh, actually, I, I was already graduated, but but uh, I went back to school one day, had to uh, visit the music class. I did a lot of singing when I was young. Yeah. And... Uh, Went back to visit the music, the vocal voice class, the vocal class, and Jeannie happened to be sitting there in the in the choir room, and that's the first well, time I saw her. I was her. attending class. Yeah, for heaven's yeah. sake, yeah. I was in the class. And he tells this story, but he says I I grinned at him, but I didn't. So. You did too. I can still see you, honey. The mind sees what it wants. No, it was true. It was true, April. She gave me the cutest little grin. I mean, she she might not give it to me, but it was the cutest little grin on her face you ever. She was a beautiful girl. I'll show you a picture pretty soon. Oh, how old were you guys? Huh? I was 15 at that time. Wait. In high school. Yeah, I was 18. This is amazing. Now, were yeah. you still fishing at this point? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And Jeannie- In fact, our first date. I took a fly rod along. No, the first date was to oh, the movies. That's right. The yes, second date, you went fishing for some little fish or something, and we didn't catch any, so we fished for crawdads. That's right. Oh, okay. That's a good compromise. There you yeah. go. You bet. What was your? But we caught them too. Yeah. What was your hobby? Singing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At that time, I I, I I did a lot of singing. I don't know. Uh, see, all this happened uh, in 1940. And in 1941, December 1941, um, I just had our first, we just had our first date in November of 41. And in December, we, uh, it was Pearl Harbor. Oh, so okay. life changed. Mm-hmm. Drastically. Now, I've, uh-huh. seen, I've seen Mending the Line, but um, some of my listeners may not have. Can we, can you proceed? Well, uh we had just gone to church on, on December the 7th, uh, 1941, and came home and listening to the radio, and the announcer broke in saying that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And uh, immediately, the next morning, I was already flying. I had my pilot's license. And next morning, I was down at the Portland Air Base to enlist in the Army Air Corps, because I knew I was going to be a fighter pilot, a terrific vision, and athlete and everything and uh, first time I found out that I was colorblind oh. and the uh, flight surgeon came out about four in the afternoon and says more do you realize you're 90% colorblind I've got to reject you it broke my heart but uh, because of that I got it was a year before they finally drafted me and uh, went in the service and that let would give us enough time that for me to get old enough that mother consented to let me get married. I had just turned 17, and uh, she... 
I don't know. Frank asked her first, and she said, no, she's too young. And then she told me, all right, you can get married, but you have to finish high school. Okay. Which Deal. meant I had to go to the principal and the school board and get permission to stay in school. Because at that time, a marriage was meant you were probably pregnant and you were not to go to school. Oh, oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So I changed, <clears throat> I changed the rules in, in that little school because some of my girlfriends got married and they never, never practiced that again. Oh, wow, that's, that's excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good for you. She broke the, broke the barrier. Broke a barrier. <coughs> you, you strike me as a woman who would break some barriers. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty timid sometimes. I'm not kidding you. She's mean. <laughs> <laughs> so then what happens, obviously? And then, uh, well, uh, just a year later, and on, actually just a year and a few days later, on January the 1st, we got married and... Immediately, I shipped out for, for uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, where I did my basic training at the Armored, Armored Force School, and, uh, and then did some other training in the States, including Camp Stewart, Georgia, which was the worst place in the world. It was a, out in the swamps, and it was a terrible duty, just awful. But anyway, we uh, finally, she joined me again at Camp Davis. I got to join him twice. Uh, when he got out of basic at Fort Knox, I got to go there. And then um, when he ended up in North Carolina, his last site, um, I got to go there. So I was there for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you, uh, I saw the train pull out, waved goodbye to him. Headed for knew Camp he was Shanks, headed for New Jersey. Knew he was headed for the ship to ship overseas. Yeah. So. Oh, what a sick feeling. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> So I went there, and then I shipped out of New York, New York Harbor, and uh, for England, and and uh, one of the most uh, memorable things to me uh, when he, I went uh, somehow as upon deck when we went by the Statue of Liberty, and I'll never forget that sight. It, oh, it, it just burned right into my old brain, and uh, we landed at Liverpool, England, and. We're up on the moors there for a little while and then shipped down to southern England just on the coast by Portland Harbor, Weymouth, uh, Dorset. And uh, that's where I shipped out of for uh, Normandy. And in fact, today is the 8th, it was yesterday, it was the day I went in Normandy. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. And, a long time uh, ago. Yeah, yep, 70, what, two years? 70. May I ask how old you are, Frank? 92. No way. Really? Mm-hmm. He's 92. I'm going to be 90 in, in December. December. I'll be 93 in next January. Wow. I am really <laughs> genuinely impressed. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt well, you. It's, it's because of uh, the way she takes care of me. Yeah, right. <laughs> she, you know, she beats on me and, and, and makes me behave. So, yeah, so that's why I'm taking so notes well. right now for my own marriage. I'm listening. Yeah. <laughs> I'm listening. I, I could. I, I, yeah, I, I make it. I make him eat his broccoli. Ha ha! Yeah. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, but you know that that true. That's a lot of uh, being married to her has been a wonderful experience. We've been blessed. We We've know. been truly blessed, and here we are it, still. This age is still, still, you know, together, married. Yeah. And, like each other, and yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> been, well, that's what been, more can you strive for? I don't really? know. It's just, it's just, 
I, I don't know how, it, nobody knows the answer to that, really. No, really nobody fun. does, because it's just, you, we didn't have any that much sense when we got married, for heaven's sakes. But <laughs> No one does have. No one does young. have. Even older, they don't. Circumstances yeah. just sometimes shape things, too. And, well, the, the friendship is apparent. Yeah. Anyway, I went in uh, Normandy and... And uh, was involved there until we broke out of Normandy. Well, I went in with uh, attached. Some of our units were attached to the Fourth uh, Division and Seventh uh, Corps. And uh, went up, we took Cherbourg and then came back down. And I was attached. My unit was attached to the Eighty Third Infantry Division, and we stayed with the Eighty Third the rest of the war. And uh, we broke out. Of Normandy at uh, what they call the San Lo Breakthrough, and that was around the in the hedgerows there. We were in the hedgerows, and that was uh, that was hell. Well, was it before the hedgerows where you saw the fish? No, after. That was after the hedgerows. Mm -hmm. See, I never got the timing right on that. Yeah, it was after after when we broke out of uh, San Lo and then headed south into Brittany and towards San San Malo, right there by Doucet. Yeah, where that uh, bridge was. Yeah, that yeah. which that that seeing that fish hanging by that in that house by that bridge was what prompted this whole film that you did. Yeah. So what's this fish? What's this? It was fish a Atlantic fish? salmon. Ah, and that'll it was do a, it. It was a pretty good sized Atlantic salmon. It was mm-hmm. and it was I saw it hanging there, and there was a, uh, a rod right alongside of it. So it made me. With my fishing experience background, even at that age, you know, I, I thought, oh God, I'd love to be able to stop and, and make a few casts <laughs> yeah. of that rod. And, yeah, they were they were but, crossing this bombed out bridge. How yeah. they got across it with all that equipment, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but, but anyway, I there's no way we could do it because we were trying to keep the German from getting into San Malo. And uh, anyway, that that was the start of the whole deal with these guys. Well, they filmed Frank. The year, a year before we went, did this thing over in France, uh, fishing on the river, mm-hmm. and uh, it, they asked him one question uh, where they ended all their filming or whatever. Um, Frank, if you could do something, whatever you want to do in life, what what is something that you would really wish you could still do? And he, that's what he came up with. He said, "I'd love to go back to France and try to fish." In that river, that I where I saw the fish. One of the uh, there were so many different things on that trip over there that when they were doing the filming that was really really touched me deeply. Being there at Luxembourg for Memorial Day at the cemetery, Mm -hmm. and Luxembourg meant so much to me because it was after the after all the fighting we'd done in Normandy and everything. Luxembourg was a little bit of a Respect that I need to remember I, that the life still there was another yeah, there, life somewhere. There was another life uh, after Where? breaking out of after breaking out of Normandy. Uh, we we took uh, the Brittany the third took the Brittany Peninsula and uh, we come back up along the Loire River and uh, we're holding force there and keeping a big German army south of, of the Loire. And as soon as they surrendered, we headed north up into. Luxembourg, where that cafe was, where we made that film of me reading a letter to Jeannie, and Luxembourg uh, was, it was a 
like as I said earlier, the kept it revitalized, it revitalized and brought sanity back into my life. And very the Bush people were yeah, they were wonderful to so us. So wonderful. And we, one we, interesting thing is that Thanksgiving Day of 1944, we were still in, in this little village of Hesperange, Luxembourg, and the Grand Duchess of Luxembourg asked the, her people that if possible to prepare a dinner on Thanksgiving Day for some of the troops that could get away. Oh. And we we had the privilege of having two other kids and myself had the privilege of eating at this with this one family, and it was a magnificent meal, truly magnificent. And in 1989, Jeannie asked the daughter of this. We went back family, there in 1989, and had a, she was still alive then because when we came back this time, she was dead. But mm. I asked her how they. Um, how they managed to do that because I knew they didn't have any much food, <clears throat> and she said we just didn't eat for a week. And that's um, wow. And and that's the way they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, those Luxembourg people were just amazing. This one lady that fixed our dinner that night, she had never had a son, and I, to her, apparently cause she kept a diary, and you saw that diary. And now it's in one of the museums in Luxembourg, by the way. But it was—it was practically the whole diary. It was about me when I came in. Mm-hmm. It was really mm-hmm. something. I'll tell you. She just her her heart just went out to this man, and yeah. he, he was sister and another one of her kids, I think. Yeah, Aww. and it was it was beautiful. It but, really was. You know, it gave him a chance to feel a home life in the midst of war, and I just think it really did give him a. Enough of a breather to hang in there. Yeah. yeah. So between love there and love here, yeah. you you make it through. It's obviously hellish, and you get home. How old are you when you come home? Home to stay. Well, let's see. It, it was well. That was in '44. That was in November '40. Uh, November '44, October, November, and then in the 5th of December, we went up into Hurtgen Forest, which was one of the Places of hell in World War Two is one of the heaviest, heaviest uh, casualty rates of any place in in, in the whole war. There in the in the Hurricane Forest, and we were there for a short time, and then the Germans hit right exactly where we had been. If I'd been there, I'd probably if we'd still been there, with well, just ten days, we we moved out ten days earlier. And if I'd still been there, I probably wouldn't be here today. Because we'd been right in the middle of it. I'd been hit right off the bat. Things like that have happened a yeah, lot in his life. A, well, it says a lot, doesn't it? it uh, yeah, and uh, anyway, and then right immediately after that, I, uh, my group, my battalion, got transferred to the northern edge of the bulge, you know, during the Battle of the Bulge during that winter. And uh, we finally, finally managed to break through there and headed across. Uh, Northern Germany, and uh, over the river, over the Elbe River by Magdeburg, and then very, very close to Berlin. But that's where uh, I have to. He probably won't say is that's where they started meeting the Hitler Youth, and um, now a lot of these veteran friends of ours. I found out he wasn't the only one that was affected by that because 
you were having to to uh, fight against kids that were what 11 12 oh. 13 yeah, years 13. old yeah, I know. and uh, they were fanatical and you had to fight them and and that's the thing that uh, you talk to some of these fellows and that that just really messed them up yeah. it really messed them up I think they were had handled things pretty well till then and I think that was a tough one because I think really think that's Frank thinks that too after yeah. we had our son that he had the breakdown after he came home from the war. I mean, that's normal for people who have been at war to come back and have that um, yeah, they linger call it with PTSD. Them. Now. PTSD, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and then they didn't know what it was. You know, the one thing that saved me and brought me out of it was two things. Two things, well, actually three things. That I uh, took summer off from my business, mm-hmm. and 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 had my son was a year old. What was your business, Frank? We had a restaurant in Roseburg. Okay. And uh, that was in 1948. And uh, with Jean's love and our son Frank's love, who was just a little over a year old then, it was about 15 months, and we spent some time on my cousin's ranch out of Medford. And whenever we could, I'd go up in the mountains for fly fishing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it <laughs> the love and this that little being kid outside, would yeah. pick up a stick and and pretend he was fishing like his daddy, and his daddy couldn't stand that. So as soon as we got out of the woods, he found a fly rod for this fifteen-month-old kid. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> and he learned how to use it. Yeah, Born <laughs> yeah. with a rod in hand. Yeah, he, he landed his first steelhead uh, alone when he was five years old. That's amazing. That is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, and anyway, we that was a very important thing in my life. It actually healed, those, you know, healed some of those wounds that were still I didn't realize were there, but were. And uh, I um, the started art of guiding. Fly fishing, yeah, I think. I I started guiding for Clarence Gordon in the Old Northampton Lodge up here. I I was very adept, you know, and. Uh, and this is after you're back from war, and you're here. Yes. To, you're here to stay. You're not going yeah. off again. No. How old are you this time, Frank? Yeah, about twenty. Let's see, 48, oh. when I filled out, been about 25. Okay, you've got a son, yep. you've got Jeannie, yep. that part of your life there is over, you're here to stay, you're still fishing, you've got the restaurant. Yep. Okay, and, uh, so you start guiding. Now, do you keep the restaurant at this point? Yes, uh-huh. And, and I I'd, I'd just, uh, I'd, this, where you're parked out here is the old road. That's the old way I used to come up here. Oh, really? And yeah, that a, highway was didn't exist. It would take a good hour and 45 minutes or more every day to, to, just to drive up to Steam. And uh, I would come up and guide for Clarence, some of the, his clients. And so he closed down. The, the, they started building the dams up here, and that uh-huh. screwed up the river. Yeah, it would. And he closed down in 1951, and there was no place up here for people to come back to to fish in the river. So in 1957, I had the opportunity to buy his lease, Forest Service lease. And so I did, and uh, he had a he had built a little store there at Steamboat, and I I could see the possibilities of building some cabins, and and, uh, and I did. I built cabins and started Steamboat in. Where were most of your sports from at the time? Uh, California, you know, actually all over the world. Some of them that you know, but most were from most California. Were, most were California and places like that. 
and you know in the southeast southwest. There wasn't there wasn't very Arizona. many people at that time from local people. Immediately, you know, when I built the cabin, first cabins, I would called up some of the people I used to guide for up at Clarence's, and we were full right from the word go. We we had a built-in clientele right from the word go. No advertising. We never advertised. Never. So never have to. We were full all the time, but we were open. And Jeannie, you were obviously helping to run the lodge. Well, she did yeah. it. Yeah, basically. that's a story in itself, running a lodge, because we didn't have power that first few years. And it was very, very primitive. But our guests loved us anyway. This is amazing. Okay, so you decide that you're going to run a guiding operation. Was it because you were really passionate about guiding? Was it for income? What was it? Well, it, it, I loved the river. Right. I loved Beyond the river. And actually, I became very adept at it and... I uh, was uh, very athletic, mm-hmm. and and uh, so I instead of I would hit places on the river that nobody else could, would get to because I'd I would waders on and everything else I would run the entire river with waders on and cork boots. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how in the world I did it, and I can't even walk now. But but I did, and it was people uh, learned to really respect me and. Uh, Look forward to being with us, and me, and Jeannie. Uh, and, and he fell in love with the river, too. I really did. Absolutely though. fell in love yeah. with this river. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah, I always thought he's going to find another river someplace, but nope. this was this yeah. was the river. So you were dr- primarily dry fly fishing? No, no, I just oh. put, at that time, you know, basically we just, you know, the... No, no weights on the flies or anything like that. Just, just barely on the surface or under. And there was no spay fishing in the, those days either. No, yeah, it was no. just. But it was uh, casting. It, well, I say the area just become part of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when things started going bad on the river, yeah, he it affected him very much. And I, I have to say, out of the blue, he he decided when the logging started going full tilt, and all of a sudden, one stream after another is coming in with this warm water. And, mm-hmm. and, and silt and everything. And and uh, he, he just, uh, how he figured out what to do, he just got himself, created a little chart, and he was run up there every day on these different streams and take temperature readings, and um, all summer long, and... Uh, course, year, it, uh, it ups, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it ups, it upset me sometimes because whenever he was gone, I was there. <laughs> she had to do the work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And did you have more children at this time, or just yeah, one? Yeah, we had, yeah, we had three children by that time. Wow, busy, busy family. We had a fourth later, but uh, by then we were pretty settled in. <laughs> right. Coming up, Frank and Jeannie explain life in the 70s as they battled to change the logging practices on the North Umpqua. As early as the 1950s, a mix of poor science and greed had done severe damage in the watershed, and soon the fishery was in danger of being wiped out. Partnering up with two marketing entrepreneurs, the team compiled a film showcasing the detriment, but it was Frank who took it upon himself to travel with the video and educate the rest of the world. The film was called Pass Creek, and it was widely distributed and viewed all over the United States, therefore influencing change in logging practices all over North America, changes that forever impacted how logging is done today. Again, just a quick thank you to Thump Coffee. Thump is on a continual quest for the perfect timeless cup, 
one as complex and full-flavored as the communities of which they're proud to be a part. Coffee done the only way they know how, without compromise. Through hard work and attention to every detail, Thump is the birthplace of genuine coffee. So anyway, when they did that, after he did that, those charts, that's when all the, the people we met that came to Steamboat to Fish just were the perfect people to to get to be able to get the word out. Right. It, it it's just like it was meant to be meant to happen. I think really. Well, like the governor, the governors of Oregon, and Otama Call and Bob Straub and. And some of those people like that, and some of the sec- secretaries back in Washington D.C., you know, and everything just fell into place. Mm-hmm. And the fellows that did the film, yeah, I mean, you couldn't have found if you had gone out trying to get the most expensive people you could pay for. We didn't have any money to pay for that film, but no. this, can, these. The, can we the, talk about that? You're talking about the film that was filmed in 1960. Yeah, Bass Creek. Okay. So I watched that mm-hmm. uh, the other day. It was it's archived in the university, mm-hmm. and it, it's exceptional. And that, is, that was done by the greatest advertising man the country's seen. Can we go into this because you I know bet. a lot of the listener doesn't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And Frank, you, you probably probably don't know this, but I shared that with my social media mm-hmm. people on on the internet, and it went viral. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it's kind of I wanted to resurface it, even though it's the past. It is a constant reminder of our future as well. Mm-hmm. And you spearheaded a lot of the issues, a lot of the conservation problems. You really helped to bring light to those. And you traveled, from what I understand, you traveled the country speaking and explaining mm-hmm. and educating people. And I was wondering if you might be willing to do that for me right now again, just to explain what happened and how we can make sure it doesn't happen again. On such situations such as that, you have to go political. Well, of course. You do, and that, and that, especially when you have all the federal lands and things. But no, more than more than political, I shouldn't say that. But you have to be able to reach the whatever height. whatever you come up with. You have to be able to back it with facts to show people, and to make people understand that there's something else beside a stick of lumber or a board of lumber that comes out of a tree, or because of a tree, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it, it, I would like to say I was blessed with knowing people that could bring us forth, and like uh, the governors and uh, and the secretaries and things like that that brought it out with emphasis. Mm-hmm. And I was able. And Oregon State University come down and and proved everything I that I had with the temperature I, readings. But let's back it up. Let's start from the beginning. So, what year was it when the logging company came in? Well, they started in 1954. Okay, so was it just a, we an independent company? Yeah. Uh, oh no, no, no it was, it was all, 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 all. They just started coming into the upper upper areas of the river at that time. Of the Umpqua. Mm-hmm. The upper Umpqua. The drainages, Steamboat Creek and Canton Creek, were hit very hard. So how far up from the mouth? Well, this is about 140 miles, roughly, from okay. the mouth of the river so up to here. But this at, at this this road was still the main traveled road that went right out, this little dirt road, until 1957, six, six and seven. Six, 57, and it got paved in up to Steamboat Inn. 58. But that was when the logging really got started. It started in 54, when the 
ranger station moved to steamboat and they started laying out all these sails up the creeks and and uh, and, the, the the timber. Tr- and the roads followed the creek right along the creek yep, yep. everyone so will you explain why the temperature rises the, the uh, what was amazing is that when they would make put a road or clear clear cut over some of these little streams the temperature would go up from 56 57 degrees which is a great temperature ideal and that's what most of them were except for the main steamboat creek and it was always warm but then they when they would log these units they would go up some of them to 85 degrees no they took everything i yeah. mean they didn't yeah. leave a scratch of any kind well, you saw it the in the film it know, did it was yeah. heartbreaking it, it, yeah. just it just so is it that the silt comes in and therefore the oxygen that's, is is that's, taken is extracted? That's right. Yeah, and and the, the warmer temperatures also the cuts down the oxygen. Yeah. See, the higher the temp- water temperature, the less oxygen the water will hold. Mm-hmm. And some so. some somebody told Frank, oh well, it, it, this shade down just below there, it'll just cool off again. It doesn't cool off again. Well, that it just was runs right the, through. One of the biologists for the BLM was yeah. trying to make that statement. It was idiotic. Who else was fighting for? The steel, or for the fish at this point, was it, it just you? No, not many, not much. They didn't really realize they what was going yeah. on. So, yeah. who did you team up with, and how did you become well, this, active? This, um, we had, had two fellows came up that were, and stayed with us to go fishing with me. That were on their way to Bridge Columbia. They were going to make a film on Bridge Columbia, and it turns out that that they were primarily. Not primarily, but they were two very young but up-and-coming advertising men. Okay. And one of them, one of them died not too long after Pass Crick was made. Hal, uh, Dick Snyder. The other one, Hal Riney, went on to become probably the greatest, one of the greatest advertising men the world's ever produced. And he knew how to put things, as you saw in the film, simply, simply, so the. The impact was there with a very few words. And that's what you need. So many people try to do something like that, and they, too many words, too long, and they lose attention. Yeah, it's intimidating that way, too. But that boom, it just hits you, and it's there. And so I, I took, I was flying. I, I, I've been flying well, since I was a kid. Well, the BLM got a copy of the film yeah. and started showing it uh, places, and so... Frank had a little, I don't know how, he, they would, who, who somebody would tell him, yeah. usually, where it was going to be shown, and he had his pilot license, and, and he and had... Well, I had my plane. And, and he had this little plane, and he'd just pop in it and fly all over the all state. All the United uh, States. Well, Colorblind and all. Yeah, well, I could, I still... Yeah, yeah he still passed his license <laughs> yeah. all right I still, after I still the war was over. Commercial, I had a commercial instrument rating, so... Right, but, yeah. But, but anyway, I did I did that, and... Uh, and I stayed home and ran the inn. Yeah. Oh, this is amazing. What a team. <laughs> I would start checking some of these streams that would have uh, good viable production of, of salmonids, mm-hmm. and... Uh, they would put a unit, maybe just one unit on the stream and raise the temperature enough that would wipe out everything from there on down, except for trash fish, your uh, yeah. day shiners and things like that. And and it was, I could say, hey, mm, this isn't, this is going to wipe out the entire fisheries if they keep this up. And I had, I was blessed to have some uh, very good friends in the Forest Service that when I showed them all this information, and they were of a 
high enough up in the hierarchy to say, we've got to change. Mm-hmm. And so the agency itself says, here's what we have to do. And they have started protecting some of the, some of the streams. Now, some of the agencies in the government weren't quite so agreeable. Of course, but, yeah. Uh, but they, they, so it took a while to get some of them, and even, even yet there's some times when they drag their feet a little bit. <laughs> and individual, I've, I've, up until the 90s, I saw an individu- individuals in the Forest Service that would do things that were stupid. They'd clear cut a stream or something like that. And, and uh, I, whenever I could find anything like that going on, I managed to raise enough hell that uh, usually took care of it. So the guys who are the, the advertising agency guys come to fish with you, and you say, let me show you yep. what's happening upstream. So they, yeah, then they, they, instead of going to British Columbia, they went back down and got some underwater camera gear and came up and made that film, which is now known as Pass Creek. That was their idea to do that? That was their idea mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did it at well, their Frank own expense. Yeah. What they, yeah, was happening. They did it at their own expense and then donated, donated it to uh, Oregon State University. Oh, okay. That's why it's on their archives. Yeah, and that... that they, by doing that, they were able to write it off, apparently, or something. And, yeah. and uh, but anyway, the uh, the that, that film actually the impact of it would make people realize, you know. Yeah. And uh, and the interesting thing was the BLM would, you know, I guess it, the BLM went after they got that copy of it, they were the ones that were trying to downplay all that it said. And that's why Frank would be in the audience. He'd fly in there, and he'd sit in the audience, and as soon as they started all that gibberish, he would just kind of break their argument to pieces. So so. you took the tape then, because there's no Internet, of of course. So you take the tape, you take your own plane, Mm -hmm. your own fuel, everything Mm -hmm. on your own expense, Mm -hmm. and you traveled the country showing this in a theater environment? Where were you showing it? All over. I mean, it was anywhere mostly, and everywhere. Any, any place, yeah. Any place that they showed it, yeah, yeah he, he would go. I, any Who else place was I heard ha- about it, and I'd, I'd just take off and go and do it. Who else was helping you at this point to spread the word? Really, nobody. Genie. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, just uh, at that time, it was just it was. Uh, but but but, but yeah. I had people that I had a lot of people helping me. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of people helping me, and uh, and uh, up and finally, I got. Uh, appointed to the, uh, the old game commission by the governor and a few things like that so I started getting a little bit more ability to have an impact on on different things like that and and I was uh, I was appointed to some federal commissions and boards and people became more aware of, of what we were trying to do all the time but that was that was probably 12, 15 years after I originally started all that. So. Right. Was there ever another devastation that the Umpqua saw after oh, that? Yeah. yeah, they they still there's uh, they still do it once in a while. Once they can while, get away yeah, with it. Yeah, I almost got hit by a logging truck on the way in. Yeah, <laughs> and, really. In, in fact, Hal Riney in the, on the script in that past creek, in those places, no one sees. You know. Mm-hmm. They still, if they could, they if would. If they can get away with it, they, they and will. Some of the, uh, some of the people in the timber industry actually were very 
<laughs> very aware of what was going, what I was trying to do, and said, we have to change too. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And it, that really made my old heart sing because it... You went back to it, Washington, D.C. to oh, testify, too. Yeah, testified at Congress from, on different things, like, you know, for the protection of the resources. And There are people who say that you've done more for streams here in Oregon than anybody else. Well, I hope it was more than just Oregon. <laughs> and it was, you know, it, what, 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 we, what we were able to show and prove made a difference all over the whole country. And... Uh, yeah, it and but like I say it, it. It was more than just Frank Moore. It was the, the people that I knew that could help and did help. How so, long did it take for the fishery to start to go back to normal? It's no. some of them still haven't, okay. you know, because it it, it would uh, the erosion when when they would cut right along the streams the erosion would erode the banks of course and make make the streams wider which would make them and not quite as deep would make them more susceptible to warming up and everything and what really was critical was some of these little high altitude streams high altitude mountain streams or whatever you want to call them that would have bedrock foundation and the sun would hit those bent at bedrock and it was just like having Water on top of a stove because oh. the water would the heat from those rocks along it would transfer under the water and just like having water on putting water on stove yeah because and warm them up amazing like say from thirty degrees in just a short distance it what was, what other fish are in here as resident fish are there rainbow trout or cutthroat or dollies main, no up mainly up in this area there were rainbows and uh, some uh, salmon. Of course, Chinook, mm -hmm. Chinook, and your cutthroat, and your cutthroat, of course, are probably the most vulnerable. But uh, what the mountain, the temperatures came up, it would it would wipe out any salmon, you know. They and they couldn't. Well, good case in point. In the historically, there was a race of fish that would spawn around the middle of June. There, there was this one area, just a. Very short, maybe a mile or so from Can Creek down to the, uh, and just a little ways above Can Creek down to the Umpqua River, where the, there was a, a race of fish, of steelhead, that would come in late and spawn around the 15th of June. Uh -huh. And immediately, as soon as they started logging up there, Within three years or four years, that race was gone. That just that one little short stretch, mm -hmm. but it could happen anywhere, and ever and it did for a while. It would eliminate that stretch from production, wherever they would do the logging. So, Frank, are those the Springer steelhead? That, those would be. Those were truly Springers. Can we talk about those? Yeah, but the main, you know, they had the winter run, and then the summers, and and here on the Umpqua, they bunch most of them in together. Yeah. They have the winter and the summers. But that's that's what's so amazing is my generation, a lot of people yeah. don't know about springers, and they're being wiped out, and they're very special. So yeah. that was a very, you know, that was one very small segment of the, of, the, of the run. It was just that one individual little race that would do that. The one thing that I try to emphasize, everyone focuses on on me and a lot of these things, and it was a heck of a lot more than me. It was... 
these all the governors and the secretaries and so many individuals. Bill Bakke from you know I know you know Bill, and people and McMillan. And those those people have been a terrific influence on on trying to get things done right. And I used to when Bill I can still see him when I was on the game commission. He when he would come into a, a meeting. The staff would cringe because he knew what he was talking about, <laughs> he, and he was going to get it done. He knew what he was talking about. It was beautiful. It really was, and I love that guy. I'll tell you. But like I say, that it was people like that that really picked, you know, really got things going too. It was more than just me. And uh, I, some for some reason, that a lot of people try to focus on us. I'm going to say include Jeannie and me, but on the two of us, and uh, and like this last deal is this uh, 105,000 acres they're putting up here up uh, Steamboat Creek in my name. Did you hear about that? I have not. Please yeah. tell. Yeah, 105,000 acres of uh, Frank Moore Steelhead Sanctuary. That's so what partial copy of it. Wow! Senator um, Wyden and Merkley have presented it to Congress. It was introduced into the Senate it's about two weeks bill. ago. So, for people who can't see this, will you just explain what I'm looking at right now? Well, I don't. I'm not sure either <laughs> yet. All I know is that a couple of weeks ago, Senator three weeks ago, Senator Ron Wyden and, and Senator Merkley from the state of Oregon introduced a bill into the Senate to establish 105,000 acres or the entire steamboat drainage as a uh, Frank Moore Wild Steelhead Sanctuary. sanctuary it yeah. says, mm-hmm. "How amazing!" Yeah, this is. Are you? I mean, are you proud of what you and, and Jeannie have accomplished? It's scary. <laughs> it I is mean, scary. Do you ever stop to think, you know, there's a reason why you weren't at that place when that bomb went off, or, yeah. or there's a reason why you yeah. escaped certain? Well, it's kind of the way we look at it. I think. Yeah, I I I don't understand. You it. do I'll what, put it that way. What comes your I way? I don't understand it. You're not supposed to. I don't think. This is absolutely astonishing. So, Frank, it, I've got it's to going to help with the. I don't, we don't know how much it'll help as far as management goes. It'll help, but, but it will help uh, for because sure. That, that that is not agency doesn't do that. It's a, by an act of Congress that that area is set aside to protect us. So, so those roads will have to be managed. They'll have to be managed and so that the logging. See, what logging will be done, and there will have to be done extremely careful and. Uh, yeah, so, and and the roads uh, won't be all that. You know, they won't want silt getting into the stream, or yeah, you know, it, it'll it'll make a difference. It'll, it it'll will. make a heck of a difference. It make yeah. a lot of difference if they could include the whole, cat and, and that's creek. where most of the most of the steelheaders or summer steelheads especially are spawned in North Umpqua. So. What do you? What would you like to see people in my generation and our generation uh, be doing right now to try to to keep what you've done? Just a lot? what you're doing. Just keep spreading the word. Keep fighting for just, it. You bet. Just what you're doing. Yep. We can do that. Because people forget. You know, they, more than that. They if they're can, not out in the woods and see everything, they they don't know what's happening. Um, say, you know, there are there's such thing as as making a making a, a good return on your investment and greed and with some people. They want it all. Every, you know, everything. Yeah, but to hell with every, hell with all the rest resources. As long as I get 
mine. And who cares about the future yeah, is the, kind yeah. of the thing. Just, it reminds me of this one old Mar uh, Marathon philosophy, the old gypsy philosophy. Uh, and with a song I sang when I was studying voice, it said, uh, never a care for tomorrow's fair, but take what you find today. It, it, that philosophy is, is still extant, you know. As, I'm gonna, I want mine, period. And uh, even though what, I, what I'm taking as mine belongs to everyone, I don't know what much more there is to say except we, you have to, you know, it, it's going to be a continual fight. What's next for the Moors? I mean, you're two of the busiest people I've ever met. Well, we're going to... Well, we'd like to kind of slow down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> what are you off doing? What, what are all these events that you're doing? Well, they're still showing the film. Ah, the Mending so, the Line film. Well, I don't want to hold you up. I just, Frank, I really wanted to just get you here and, and, and let you know, you know, I wanted to say thank you myself and also let you know that you're... You're a very respected man in the, in the sport of fly fishing. Hey, Frank and Jean, don't forget her. I know, Jeannie, you, you guys really are a, a, a true... A, we are a pair. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. we are a pair. And she had, she had <laughs> backed me from the word go, and, and sometimes I wondered why. Sometimes I did, too. <laughs> um, well, before I let you have <laughs> your, your life back, is there anything that you would like to add, Frank? Just keep working. You just have to keep working. Yep. Have you know people that keep bringing people? Try to try to in, in have people coming up through the sport or whatever we wish to call it, because it it does take somebody with a love of something like fishing or whatever it may be to fight for it. And uh, we have. In the steamboaters, there's one, one, there's several people in there that have been phenomenal. But we have one gentleman, but that uh, I, I don't know. He he has worked so hard. Old uh, Joe, old Joe Ferguson. Joe, I don't know if you ever heard of Joe or not. Joe is a remarkable man. He is a super intelligent person, and just like Bucky and McMillan, he works his tail off and expects nothing in return. And uh, I, I just, people like that I admire with no end. So many people, you know, oh, I'm going to do this, but I want this, or I want that, or I want that. Because we've reached a point in life where we can't uh, be that involved anymore. Well, I, I wouldn't Well, you're that. still involved. I shouldn't <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. We can't we can't do the physical a lot of the physical effort it takes to do what really needs to be done. We just need to have a few nights by ourselves and stuff. Yeah, but when are one, you going to slow down? <laughs> one thing one thing that uh, I would uh, appreciate sometime and uh, if you would maybe come down and spend a couple of days with us and I'll if I don't feel like getting out in the river with you, I'll send you out with somebody here that really knows it. And and uh -huh. I'd, I'd, if I, I'd, I'd try to sneak out with you a little bit too, but but I'd, I'd send you out with Ron and let let him fish with you. Well, and yes, please. I'll take we you up on you up. Tell you what, I'll cook for you. And then you can actually take off in the evening and go and have some romantic time and I'll clean well, up. You know, <laughs> what, 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 you know what, what we didn't bring up is she is one of the leading uh, 
wildflower advocate. Well, that was part country. of this, Frank. Oh, that's it. But I'm that's not. It is. It is. That. It is true, isn't it, right? Oh. It is. She's the she's the chair of the probably the, the oh, finest have, wildflower show we have in the whole nor, whole northwest. In fact, in one of the whole in the whole country. Yeah. We do have a wonderful wildflower yeah. show, and uh, they have over seven hundred species of wildflowers this year. That's it's just another way of making people aware of what's out here in the environment that yeah. they don't even see. Yeah, and a whole lot of fly fishermen don't see them either. No, they they really don't, do they? Well, you, a lot of the a lot of you darn flower nuts don't see the fish either. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true though. It's funny nah. when I when I'm guiding the guys and there's a waterfall there and fish there. The guys, they don't see the waterfall or the flowers. They go straight to the that fish. That is, you know, that frustrates me. <laughs> me too. Yeah, there is. Uh, when, what when, are you out there for? When, yeah. when we're guiding. Yeah, exactly. But the gals go to the waterfall first. Uh-huh. They take a moment and then they go to the fish. And they remember the whole experience. The whole experience. That's the right. Yep. And when I'm out there fishing and, and from time immemorial with practically that's about how old I am. But anyway, it was a lot more than just hooking that fish. It was the canyon walls and watching the swallows fly and and the ripples in the water. And that's and why it was so healing for him. You bet. Your timing on this is excellent um, because my my podcast this morning was, of course, with um, with the hatchery gentleman and one of the friendly debates that mm-hmm. we went through was. Uh, the guys wanted they they wanted numbers, and the reason why they wanted numbers was because they felt as though to get more people into the sport, young people specifically, they needed to have lots of fish. And he said, "I wouldn't have gone out every day if if I was catching one fish a day." And I had to interject because I had to let him know that I would, I do. There's I can't begin to tell you how many weeks, months I've gone sometimes without hooking fish, yeah. and it was always more than the fish. It was always the experience. So it is very interesting to hear somebody like yourself say that it's not about the numbers. It is about the whole experience. And that gives me that gives me faith that there are people out there who know that it's not about the numbers. If hatcheries were the solution we'd have a lot of fish. We'd have more than a fish today. Everything would be unbelievable, you know, as far as amounts. But wherever they put hatcheries in First thing you know, there's less. There's less how can instead they not, of better. How can and they the argue research with that? shows why. And the, so many people, they you know they, well, it's sure greed, I guess. They, because they, it's not immediate? Yep. That's why. That's right. It's because it's not immediate. So then when time kicks in and all of a sudden the results and the consequences mm-hmm. begin to show, there's always something else to blame yep. it on. It's a very interesting debate you for me. You bet. It, again, it goes back to what this one one recital piece that I learned. How lovely is the hand of God that smooths the rough place man has trod. So over the years, take a hundreds of them, but if you don't keep keep doing it over and over again, these what we've destroyed can might might reheal. And we gotta fight for that. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Join me in the next episode as I visit with Oregon's Ken Morish.
fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.